0: Good morning. I'd like to extend a special welcome to those that are watching this online. This week, we launched the Ridge.Church forward slash live, and so our services are now being broadcast in real time at both 9 and 11 o'clock, which we are thrilled with. So some people, I think, um, wonder about taking a step like this because they envision that if you have this quality service online people are going to stay in their pajamas and just watch from at home Uh, but studies have indicated that's not what happens people realize that it's just different coming and so uh, on occasions when they can't come they can watch it but it's just uh, that people miss the fellowship and relationship which is what people are looking for and so we think it's going to be a wonderful thing three things to Keep in mind, as we move forward with this, number one, it's, it's an opportunity for you to invite other people. We want to be an inviting church that leads people into a growing relationship with God and others. And I think sometimes people are intimidated to come through our doors, and if we could point them to this website, our church website, and they can watch the program online in a safe of their own home, then we think that they're more likely to attend. Second, I think it's an opportunity to engage you when you're not able to attend. Uh, We all get sick sometimes, we're all traveling sometimes. I've understood that some studies that have been done on this indicated that it actually increased uh, attendance for the average person because as it was, they were only able to come maybe every other week, but now they could add this service and it adds a week to it. And then third, it's just an opportunity for outreach. We're thrilled with the opportunity we have to be all over the world and to impact people for Christ. So I think it's a real celebration, a a new step forward, and I think both the quality of of the service, the consistency of it all, um, will be improved with these steps that we're taking. Why don't we take a minute to pray before I jump into our talk this morning? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that um, through Christ we're made alive, and thank you that Through Christ, we have forgiveness, and that we can have a relationship with you, we can know you and and love you. And thank you, Lord, you care so much about us. Thank you, Lord, that you desire a relationship with us week in and week out, day in and day out, that we can know you because of Jesus. We ask you, Lord, to continue speaking to us today through our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past few months, I've been looking for opportunities to go to the little cabin that my wife and I bought about nine months ago. Uh, I just love going there, getting out in the woods. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere on a little mountain. that's called Short Mountain near Augusta, West Virginia. I won't give you any more details because I don't want you to show up at the cabin. It'll kind of ruin it. But some things have happened recently that changed my perspective, just a speck of going and enjoying this cabin. The first happened about a week and a half ago. My wife and I were there on our day off, and she was, she was lying on, on the sofa there, and I saw something crawling up the sofa. And I was about six, seven feet away, and I, I looked at it. I said to my wife, don't move which she got kind of concerned. She saw how big my eyes were, but what is it? And my first thought was it looked like a crab, but that didn't make any sense. Why would there be a crab crawling up the sofa? But then I thought, well, maybe it's a, a small mouse. I decided to get just a little bit closer, and I saw what it was, the biggest spider I have ever seen in West Virginia. Like, I didn't think they made them that big in West Virginia. I've seen big ones down in Central America. I've never seen one so big here with its legs extended. It was between three and four inches in circumference. It was, it was massive. And I got a big container, and I caught it, and I killed it and prayed there'd be no more. Now, I'm pretty convinced that there isn't a family of them there because I had left the back... Door to the deck open the whole day, so I think it came in through there. But about a week earlier, I had set off one of those bug bombs, and I hope that took care of any other things. But now I'm aware that that they exist out there. I don't like spiders. I can deal with snakes, not spiders. I hate spiders. The second thing that happened happened this week. I was sitting out on the back deck. Working on the message, actually, and I heard uh, a loud shuffling noise off to the back side of the cabin and sounded like a large animal. And so I walked over there carefully, and just as I got around the corner, a black bear shot by me and took off down the hill. Now, my wife will tell you that I've been looking for bears on the property, like, I've wanted to see bears on the property. But now that I know they exist, I'm not so thrilled anymore because I realize it's gonna change everything. Because I like to go for walks and there are these paths that go all over and now it's like every squirrel that moves, bear, bear, you know. I need to get that spray or something, you know. But I just kind of changed everything. Uh, You know, when you think of God's creation, it's kind of interesting the things that God has created because there are things that he's made that are nice and cute and cuddly and beautiful and awe-inspiring. For example, when I showed up at the cabin last week, I I saw some of these luna moths, big moths. They were beautiful. There were four of them. I thought, this is just beautiful. Now, that's how things started. Now, the spider kind of, I don't know, evens that out just a little bit. But there's beauty in creation, and you look at the mountains, and it's just awe-inspiring and all that God has created. But then there are some things that God has created that are, are kind of, if I could use the word, dangerous. They're not maybe quite as nice. There are poisonous snakes. There are other creatures out there like big spiders. That one probably, by the way, couldn't hurt me. It just, its looks hurt me more than it could. But there are creatures out there, you know, that that are just, uh, you know, like, why did you create this? And maybe some of it's the result of the fall. Maybe we can blame Adam and Eve. But even in terms of things like storms, the lightning storm last night, that's dangerous. And there are places on earth that are inhospitable to people where, where you die if you're out there too long, deserts or mountains that people climb and sometimes they don't make it back down. And you say, why did God create some of these things? And I think part of it is related in in who He is. I think God has revealed what He's like through what He's made. I've mentioned that before, quoting from Romans chapter 1, God has revealed His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature through the things that He's made. We learn what our God is like through the things that He's made, through the things He's created. And our God is a God of beauty and kindness and goodness and love. That's what I think of when I see some aspects of creation. But there are some aspects of our God that are, frankly, dangerous. And I wonder if it doesn't speak to perhaps God's holiness, God's righteousness. Speak to the idea that Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I don't believe that when, Paul, or when Solomon said that, that he was suggesting we cower before God. That's not the spirit of it. It's having, though, a proper respect to realize God is God and you are not. Now, the last several weeks, we've been doing this series called The Story of Us, and it's a story about God's interactions with humanity. Throughout biblical history, the Bible composes about 4,000 years of, of the history of how God and people have interacted. It started with our creation. I'm convinced that the purpose for which we were created was to have a relationship with our Creator. It's the reason God made us. It's important to realize that, by the way, because I think some people, God is not part of their lives And yet, that's what we were created for. You're missing out on the most important thing. We were created to have a relationship with our Creator. That's our purpose. And then we talked about a problem coming into the whole story, a thing called sin. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and suddenly there was a wedge in the relationship between people and His creation. But God knew that was going to happen. That didn't catch Him by surprise. God knew that when He created people with the free will to choose for or against Him, to obey or disobey him, he knew what the outcome was going to be. God is not the one who created evil in this world, but when he created people, he created the potential for evil by giving them the choice. And they chose poorly, and suddenly sin came into the world, and there was a wedge between people and God. And you find Adam and Eve hiding in the Garden of Eden, but God, again, knew it would happen, so he came up with a plan. And I'm suggesting that the Bible's has one main theme, it's this plan. His plan was to send his son into the world to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, pay the penalty for our sin, to rise again from the dead so that if we would put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, our sin will be removed and our relationship with our creator will be restored. That's what the Bible is about from beginning to end. Last week, I demonstrated that through the story. See, I think there's one main Bible story. It's the Son of God, Savior of the world, through whom we can have life and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. That's the main story. That story is taught from Genesis to Revelation, but it's also seen in the other Bible stories. That's what we looked at last week. Look at other Bible stories in the Old Testament. You'll see the story of Jesus. It's hidden there in plain sight. Well, today, we begin with Jesus. Today, we talk about the fact that after 4,000 years of biblical history, a baby was born into the world who would die on a cross in our place and for our sin. But what I want to demonstrate here today is that Jesus' death on the cross, his death on the cross made perfect sense given who God is. In other words, if we were asking the question, why did Jesus have to die? It comes down to the way our God is, a God who's merciful and kind and gracious and compassionate, but a God who also is holy and righteous and just. And the solution God came up with was absolutely perfect. I want us to walk away with this idea that justice and mercy met at the cross and mercy won. Justice and mercy both met in that historic moment at the cross, and mercy won. James put it this way, the half-brother of Jesus in James 2.13. He said, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you were asking the question, which is greater, judgment or mercy? Mercy's greater when it's applied. Now, our entire judicial system, I think, is based on this idea. And I've talked with various people in law enforcement, but also in the court system about this. Is it really true, if you're like a lawyer, you know that this, there are two ideas that are working all the time in terms of our judicial system, justice, mercy, justice, mercy, both are important. We want, we want justice, don't we? When I see that certain ones who commit atrocious crimes do not face justice, what happens? I get, I get mad, I bet you do too. You say, that's just not right. We want justice, but sometimes we just wish some mercy could be applied because we, we, we look at maybe some circumstances and we say, well, given these circumstances, maybe the full hardness of the law doesn't have to apply here. Maybe, maybe we can extend a little mercy. Sometimes you can't. Several years ago, I was chosen to be on jury duty here in Mon County. It was a fascinating trial that I sat through. Most trials, I understand, in jury duty are kind of boring. Mine was not. It involved a young man named Scott Innes. I think he was 21 years at the time, and he got into a gunfight with 15 police officers. He had done something earlier in the day, and then he did something else, and so they were going to go and. And arrest him and so they show up at at this place where they found him this big house and they knocked on the door and they announced themselves and he responded with gunfire and thus began a horrible 13 hours of of this guy firing at officers i saw pictures of the house it was riddled with bullets just riddled bullets all across, See, what, what and they were almost, almost 100% of them were were in us. It wasn't the officers. He was the one firing at them. He'd hear a noise at the corner of the house, and so he'd shoot over there. He'd hear something over here. He'd shoot over there. 15 officers from five departments were called to help resolve this situation. They, they had the weapons in the courtroom, the the guns and a knife that was used and other things, it was all there, and I I look at this young man and I'm on the jury thinking, what do I do with this? After a week almost of testimony, we make our way into the back jury room and that was quite an eye-opening experience. Eleven of us were in agreement, the twelfth was not. The, the one, one of the guys decided sided with Innes. The rest of us all looked at the case and said, this is, this is clear, this is open and closed case here. And um, it took a long time, but we finally arrived at some agreement. It's just this one guy didn't like policemen impacted the whole, his ability to discern right from wrong and what was good and what was bad. He just couldn't, couldn't sort it out. But eventually he came along and we ended up indicting this young man of 45 felonies. It was 15 officers, three felonies each, 45 attempted first and second degree murder, you know, assault with a, against an officer wanting endangerment. When all was said and done, he was sentenced to 387 years. He'll never see the outside of that prison in terms of living. Again, that's, that's his life. But as I sat there and I watched this, I, I felt sorry for him too. A couple things came to mind. Number one is how long does a person do something that so ruins their life in, in one day to ruin their entire future? But the second thing that came to my mind was just how hopeless his situation was. You see, at the trial, nobody spoke in his defense. Nobody spoke in his defense. He didn't even speak in his defense. All of the testimony was... By the prosecution and then when it was his turn it was just a statement that was read nothing and that was it and then we go in the courtroom and how do you extend mercy to that situation there was nothing we could do now when Adam and Eve disobeyed God they did not deserve mercy and there was no one to speak on their defense God had said to Adam and Eve the day that you eat you will die Now, if you know the story, if you read in Genesis, it looks like they ate the fruit and then they lived. They had more kids. They didn't die, did they? Yes, they did. Because in the Bible, there are three kinds of deaths that are talked about, and all three are the effect of sin. In Romans 6 and verse 23, Paul wrote, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn because of sin, death. And God had told Adam Eve, death is it, and all of us sin, and that's what we're all going to be facing one day. But it's three kinds of death, not just one. It's physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. All of these are a separation, though not an end. You know, people think of death as being an end. You say goodbye to someone, but that's not what death is, biblically. Death is a separation. Physical death is a separation of the... The body from the soul, the soul goes somewhere. In three weeks, I wanna talk about that, where it goes. Soul goes somewhere, the body stays there. That's called death. It's a separation. Spiritual death is a separation of people from their creator. And all of us are are born into this state of, of sinfulness. And this was illustrated, of course, in the Garden of Eden when after Adam and Eve sinned against God, they hid from him. The relationship now had a wedge. That's called spiritual death. Eternal death is being separated from God for all eternity. And after Adam and Eve sin, God confronted them, and that was, that's what they had coming, and they could not speak for themselves. The devil was there, but he would only accuse. And then there's the judge in the case, God himself. And this is where things get amazing because of the way our God is. He, he, he went from being the judge to being an advocate and he had him kill an animal or he killed an animal and clothed them and hid their shame and thus began the introduction of this sacrificial system that was pointing to the day when his own son would die on a cross in our place and for our sin. All of this so came about. God's willingness and ability to forgive every one of us came about at a tremendous cost. It came about as a result of the, the mercy of our God and the justice of God coming together in the person of Jesus. And so after 4,000 years of biblical history, a baby was born. I want to read about his birth, and then I want to read about his death and tie it together. Matthew writes about the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew's other name was Levi. Most scholars, by the way, believe that, that God or Jesus changed his name. He was named Levi, he was a tax collector, he was despised. Jesus gave him a new name. And I think that's what he does with us as well. And Matthew then writes this story in verse 18 of Matthew 1. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, you'll name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. Just reading this feels like Christmas in July. I know it's June. Tomorrow's July. The remarkable story is, I, I mean, have you ever wrestled with, did it, did it re, I mean, it really, did it happen this way? It was prophesied, of course. Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, some words that were written 700 years earlier. Isaiah was saying, here's the sign that you'll know what the Messiah is like. A virgin will be found to be with child. Someone who has never been with a man will suddenly be pregnant. And so it was with Mary because God was about to do something remarkable that had never happened before. You see, the incarnation was essential because this one who was coming into the world was going to be both the Son of God, or God the Son, and a Son of Man. And he would be the one who could go between God and people and bridge the gap. There's one mediator between God and people. It's the man Christ Jesus, Paul wrote. And so this one was born into the world, but it it required a special kind of birth. This is what suggests to me it's all true because this is what was necessary to fix the problem of sin. When Jesus was 30, he began teaching, and he began performing miracles, but he, he did not come to set up a religion called Christianity. It's not what Jesus came to do. Well, let's start a religion. He knew all along he was coming to die on a cross. He he knew he was going to sacrifice his life. For this thing to work, by the way, he'd have to live a sinless life. He was offering himself as a replacement for you and me. He was offering to take upon himself the penalty that we deserved, and that required that he himself could never sin because if he sinned, he'd be disqualified. But he was God in the flesh, and he faced temptation like the rest of us, but he said no, and he went the distance, and then he died. The very wrath of God was poured out against Jesus. Some don't like the idea that God would have wrath, but he does. If you believe the Bible, he does. Of course, in the case of God, wrath does not mean he has a temper tantrum. Some have defined wrath as a holy God confronting sin. That's what God's wrath is. You imagine God in his holiness, so holy you can't even look upon him and live. It's like looking at the sun. He was so glorious. God is so amazing and so glorious. You can't stand in his presence. And then you imagine we in our sinful condition coming before God. Here I am. He's glorious and, and we can't do it. And we've got a problem. In First John 2.2, 1, John 2, one of Jesus' closest friends, though, wrote this. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation is one of those religious terms that can be defined in this way. or It's how my Bible study defines it. Propitiation is the removal of divine wrath. Jesus' death is the means that turns God's wrath from the sinner. He himself is the one. He's the propitiation for our sins. God's holiness against all the sin of the world was poured out on his own son, Jesus. And in that moment, he died physically, he died spiritually, and somehow eternally. That part, I don't know how it works, but spiritually, as he hung on the cross, he cried out in that moment that sin was attached to him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? He knew the answer, of course. It was just an exclamation of the, the agony that he was facing to be separated from his God. The reason this works the way it does is because God is holy, but God is also merciful, and He always is both, and this is where I think people misunderstand the nature of God. I think some people think that when God is showing justice, then He's not showing mercy, you know? That God is a God of love, therefore, He could never be a God of judgment, for example. I hear people say that. Well, God is love, therefore, He'd never judge anybody. God is what He is always, you know? John wrote about about God, He, he said, God is love. It's not that God loves, he is love. It's who he is, he's what he is. Everything he does is born out of love, but it's also born out of justice, everything he does. And so the justice of God required that death be meted out to sinners, that's the penalty. I gave you life, you said no to me, the consequence is death. But Jesus was able to come in and fix that. The solution God came up with was a loving one. Well, in love, what I could do is, I'll send my son into the world to die and pay the price for everybody else. It'd require that he'd live a sinless life, but, but he, could, he could take my wrath. You see, this even in our judicial system can be accomplished. If you are fined a million dollars for something you do, like you're, you're found guilty and you only have $50 in the bank, you're in trouble. But what if someone who is a multimillionaire came up and said, I'll pay it, writes a check, as long as they have the ability to do it, the judge will say, you're free. Jesus had the ability to take upon himself God's wrath against our sin. He died in our place. And since God judged him, he could no longer judge us, provided we have a relationship with his son, Jesus. That's what's required. You... Jesus said, I, I know my sheep and they know me. Yeah, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ is how this thing gets fixed. We have to come to a point where we put our faith in Him. As Jesus hung on the cross, we read about His last moments in John 19 28. It says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, He did everything He was intending to, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, He said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it to his mouth. Hyssop, by the way, was what was used to apply the blood at the Passover. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written, the phrase, it is finished, is one word. It's tetelestai. According to D.A. Carson, a scholar, Papara receipts for taxes have been recovered with the word tetelestai written across them, meaning paid in full. This word on Jesus' lips was significant. When he said, it is finished, not I am finished, he meant his redemptive work was completed. He had been made sin for people and had suffered the penalty of God's justice which sin deserved, paid in full course when he rose again from the dead it demonstrated that the payment had been received by God now let me bring this home here many of you of course know the story and many of you put your trust in Christ that's the solution you know John 3:16. God so loved the world he gave his only son whoever believes in him whoever puts their trust in him will not perish but have eternal life See, we can't earn this thing. It can only be given as a gift, but you've got to receive it by faith. Ephesians 2.89, Paul says the same thing. For by grace, you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift. For by grace, that's something you can't earn. It's God's kindness. For by grace, God's kindness, you are saved. Saved just means delivered from the penalty of your sin. For God's kindness, you are delivered from the penalty of your sin. On what basis? By faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not something you can work for. It's a gift, not as a result of works. Otherwise, you'd boast. That's what Paul says about it. Most of you have come to that point where you said yes to Jesus after you recognize, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and you put your trust in Christ. But I want to focus my comments on some of you here who have been attending a long time that maybe haven't really examined whether or not you're one of those who's put your faith in Christ. Over the years, I've had a lot of people who came up to me who have been attending for years, and they've told me this, I just got it today. I don't blame them for that, and I celebrate that when that happens. But I think what happens is I talk about Jesus, and we're sitting in our seats thinking, I know Jesus already. I've been to church, you know. Or we maybe think in our own mind, I'm kind of a good person. Surely I'll go to heaven. We've not stopped to ask the question, have I really reckoned with the reality? I'm a sinner. I can't fix this. And have you from that place of need looked to Jesus and said, I need a savior, please. Let your death count for me. Your resurrection count for me. I'm going to close uh, with a prayer. I call it a prayer of invitation. It's a... A prayer that I want to encourage you to pray in your own heart to God if you want to put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior. Now, when you do that, you don't have to do that every time. You know, some people think, do I have to pray every time? No, once you put your trust in Christ, you are a child of God. But I'm asking you to consider, am I really a child of God? Have I put my trust in Christ? I'm going to offer a prayer that I want to encourage you to pray in your own heart to God. Before I do, though, uh, together we're going to sing a song called Endlessly. It talks about the fact that the work on the cross is done. talks about praising our God and laying down our lives before our King Jesus. And it's a song that talks about asking God really to open up the door. Specifically, I think it's the door of our own hearts. All of us need to open up the door of our heart to Jesus. So I want to ask you to stand. We're going to sing together, and then I'll close with that prayer of invitation. Heart. It's not really the words, it's the heart behind it and the faith behind it. So I'd like us to bow our heads and just want to offer this prayer. And if today, by the way, you believe that you're trusting Christ for the first time, we'd like um, to ask you to let us know because we'd love to send you some little booklets that explain about a new life with Christ. But let's pray in your own heart a prayer something like, dear God, I know that I've sinned against you. I know I've blown it. can't I can't fix it I need a savior and I do believe that you sent your son Jesus Christ to come into this world taking on flesh and blood to live a sinless life so that he might die in my place and for my sin and then he rose again from the dead and it proves that you accepted the payment He's become the Savior of the world, but today I receive him as my Savior. Today I want to put my trust in him. I want to claim your promise where you said in John 3 that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Today I do. Today I trust Jesus with my eternal destiny. And I thank you in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen.